The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right. Well, let's um, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we are going to read verses 12 and 13. We looked at 12 last week, but they go together. This is the reading of God's word. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Well, I remember being a, a new Christian. And I was, I think I was 14 years old, and our um, youth pastor gave me a little packet of little scripture memory cards from the Navigators. And how many of you did Navigators memory? Okay, Roger, I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Yes, all right. Um, that's the most successful invitation I've given in a long time. Um, it was, it was great, right? You, you had that little packet of cards and you just memorized those texts. Well, this was one of them. And it is just, it's an important passage. It is one of those texts that is necessary for us in the fight of faith. Uh, Although I found it interesting, Gordon Fee, and I put this in your notes, he says, these final sentences of the paragraph talking about verse 13, are among the better known in this letter, having served generations of Christians as a word of hope in times of difficulty. And to that I say, amen. And then he says, unfortunately, it is also usually cited in isolation from its present context. And um, in fact, I think that verse 13 is probably the most famous verse in at least 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, Maybe it's the most famous verse outside of chapter 13, in all of the letter, um, but it has a context. And sometimes when we sort of lift a verse out in isolation and we don't see the way that it's connected to the context, we don't end up um, understanding the text in, in its fullness, right? So this is one of the, one of the challenges that we have. Um, I, I think the text as a promise stands wonderfully, beautifully on its, on its own, but let's remember, every text has a context. Now, the thing about it that is sort of interesting is that it is not immediately clear of the way the passage is connected. Uh, in fact, just look at your Bible for a second, and look at verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, take heed that he does not fall. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The passage actually goes quite smoothly if you just take verse 13 out. You get this nice warning in verse 12, and then you get a therefore in verse 14 and the exhortation to flee idolatry. But here's here's the point is that you can't just leave it out. And so you have to ask, what is it doing there? Uh, 
And so, as we think about this, about this verse 13, um, just a few things to help us. Verses 12 to 13 is the application of the larger context of 8, 1 to 10, 11, and the more immediate context of 10, 1 through 11, all right? So, so 12 and 13 are the, um, in, in a sense, sort of the concluding application of the larger section, right? So, so in that sense, 12 and 13 is sort of a conclusion transition, but it's also the conclusion application, more specifically and more immediately, of 10, 1 to 11, all right? So we need to keep that in mind, that this is the application of both a larger and a smaller context. 12 and 13 also are two sides of the same coin of application. We talked about that last week. You have warning and promise. And remember, warning and promise always go together. Warnings and promises always work in tandem with each other. They work in concert with each other. The warnings and the promises, in a sense... um, keep us balanced, keep us going down the middle of the road. The warnings keep us from presumption, from laziness. The promises keep us from despair. And so both of them are designed to keep us moving forward. So 12 and 13, even if, even if the connection between the two seems a little difficult, the fact is what you have is a warning and a promise. So the warning... Verse 12 follows the list of sins, 5 through 11, and warns them that they dare not fall. All right? That's the point, right? So 12, verse 12 is a warning, you better not fall like they did. But the promise of verse 13 assures them that they need not fall. And again, you see the way that this ends up working together. The warning says, you dare not fall. And, and, and there's moral responsibility, there's culpability. You, you have to actually take that warning seriously so that you don't fall. But then the promise then turns around and says, and you need not fall because God's faithful, all right? So you can see they actually work together quite nicely. And so let's kind of pick this apart a little bit. Uh, first point, no uncommon trial. The text reads, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. So when Paul says no temptation has overtaken you, um, first of all, the word overtaken. The word overtaken is one of these words that has, uh, you look it up in um, Bauer, Art, and Gingrich, the big Greek lexicon, and there are 10 entries for this word. All right, 10 entries, and you get down towards the end, and uh, sometimes this word, because the word could just mean to take or to receive, and then there's all these different nuances, so there's this big wide range, but you get down to the end, and sometimes the word means to be seized or to be come upon. So a couple of, of different examples would be in the Gospels where Sometimes you would have, and amazement came upon the people. Or you could translate it, and amazement seized the people, right? Or sometimes you see it with fear. Fear came upon the people, or 
fear seized the people. That's probably the way that Paul's using this uh, word right here is the idea of there's no temptation that has actually come and seized you or that has come upon you. Now, in, in the context, he says no temptation. Well, here's, here's sort of the interesting thing about the word temptation. Is it's the same word as trial. They're the same exact Greek word. Perosmos. Temptation or trial. And so you can actually start to see that there's a little bit of a challenge because do we look at trials and temptations differently? Is a trial different than a temptation? You, you absolutely just nod your head, say, yes, um, you're right, good job. Um, yes, there's a difference between trials and temptations. Well, if you have the same word, guess what determines the difference? Context, very good. So, we're on a roll. And so, if you have this word and it is not abundantly clear in the context, which way it's leading us. See, there are some passages where it is very, very clear, right? Very clear. This passage is actually not quite so clear, and sometimes, this isn't always the safest way to do uh, biblical interpretation, but sometimes you can look at a word that has a, a broader range, and it's possible but that that word might be doing double duty, all right? In other words, the, the, the ambiguity of the word in context may be ambiguous simply for the sake that, that, that maybe the author is not committing himself to one or the other, all right? Does that make sense? Okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that, that that's probably what's going on here. The, the word could be temptation, in the sense of the sins listed in 5 through 11. All right? So no temptation to those sins has so overtaken you, except as that which is common to man. And that would certainly be, that would certainly be right and true. But in the larger context as well, the idea of trial fits because there would be, let's say, the trial of trying to live faithfully, even with the pressures of, of being lured back into your old life and so forth, and the, the, the trials of, um, of being ostracized or um, being uh, put outside of your own social network and structure and so forth. So Findlay, an old, old commentator, says both the allurements to idolatry and the persecution which its abandonment entails. He's saying that's how we should understand the word. On the one hand, yeah, temptations to idolatry, but then also the idea of persecution that comes when you abandon your idolatry, all right? So the idea is probably that there is no temptation. By the way, it's sort of interesting this is, this is probably, nobody probably cares about this except me and like 
three other people. The no in the, in the Greek text is, does not modify temptation. It actually modifies the verb. All of our English translations translate it, no temptation has, but it's temptation has not overtaken you. Okay? That's, that's the way that it reads. Um, so be that as it may. So here you have the idea of temptation or trial. And Paul says, um, none, no temptation, no trial has overcome you except that which is human. So the, the, the word, great word, anthropinos, right? So anthropos, man. So this is sort of an adjectival form, that which is just a human. So guess what kind of temptations and trials we're subject to? Just human ones. It's good news because you're just a human. Right? Now, what... <laughs> You have to admit that I hope that you see sometimes there's a little bit of humor. What other kind of temptation would you be subject to? That which is common to angels, right? I mean, so so in a sense, it's sort of a, a, what would be called a tautology. It's, it's just obvious, right? What kind of temptation are you, uh, you know, you subject to? Well, that which is just common to human beings, all right? But there's something about that phrase that ends up being important. So one commentator, really like him, David Garland, he says, he says, withdrawing from all idolatrous functions would scuttle any ambition for social advancement, impair patron-client relations, fuel ostracism, and damage economic partnerships. The pressured compromise and to join in the hail fellow well-met conviviality was fellowship was intense so there was a there was an intensity to the trials and the temptations that they were going through okay make no mistake about it the minute that one of the corinthians decided i am going to abandon my idolatry that Corinthian was actually then putting himself in a, uh, a pressure cooker, putting himself in a situation where he was now going to feel the full weight of having abandoned a former way of life in which all of his social and familial connections were. Okay? And what Paul says is there's nothing even something as intense as that, there is nothing that has overtaken you except that which is just ordinary, just common. Anthony Thistleton, a, a British New Testament guy, says, no temptation is fastened upon you except what is part and parcel of being human. Okay? Now, here's, here's the thing, is that the Corinthians may well have thought that they were exceptional in their trials and temptations. And Paul just says, no. Everything that, that comes upon you, it's just ordinary stuff. 
Now, this, this ends up being a really good reminder to us because we are the kind of people that, well, so first of all, we're Americans. So we, we always exaggerate, okay? Right? Everything is the best. So if you're from Texas, it's even worse. Everything is the best. Everything is the biggest. Everything is, you know, so we, we have the best. We have the worst. We have, I mean, we talk just in superlative terms all the time, right? And so, um, and in counseling with people, you would be surprised the things that people say. You have no way to know what I'm going through because you have never X, Y, and Z. Oh. So you are like super special when it comes to trials and temptations. You're so amazing. I can't believe it. You must be an extraordinary human being to experience such extraordinary trials and temptations. And Paul would say, get over yourself. Get over yourself. Your, your experience, your particular path, your particular uh, past, all of that, guess what? It's ordinary stuff. It's ordinary stuff that is common to human beings. So in one sense, that's, that's good news, right? It's good news. And so Paul then goes on and he comes to the promise part. So there's a commonness to all of our temptations and our trials, okay? Um, Let me say one more thing about that because we sometimes, and this is especially true like in, in, in counseling, we sometimes think that the only people that can help us are people who have trod the same path as us and have the same experience as us. And so, who is it? Who's the only person that can help a drug addict? Well, a drug addict. Who's the only person that can help a fornicator? Well, a fornicator. Who's the only person, you know, that can help, you know, an embezzler? Well, an embezzler, you know. Um, who's the only person? You, you get the idea. And, and let me just say that that's just nonsense, just absolute nonsense. A person may have some insight from their experience, but guess what? Insight from experience is not what ultimately helps us. What ultimately helps us is the Word of God. So a person who's equipped with the Word of God but does not necessarily share my experience is able to do me more good than somebody that's able to commiserate in my experience and say, well, you know what helped me is, I mean, I read an Oprah book and it was fantastic. If they have both, then that's great. Then that's great. But having both doesn't necessarily make that person more skilled than the person that's just equipped with the word. Okay? So I don't have to, I don't have to have your experience to help you. All right? If I'm depressed, you don't say, well, I haven't had brain surgery, so you're on your own. Or your parents stayed together for your whole life. I can't help you. Mine were divorced when I was nine. Right? There is a commonality 
to all of our trials and all of our temptations. And this is why, by the way, you can read the Bible and relate to a Jewish king that lived 3,000 years ago. Because it's just common human stuff that never changes, right? Okay, so now Paul gets to the good stuff. He gets to the promise. And this promise is made up of three parts and then a result. So, so notice what he's saying. So there is temptation and trial in this life, and the only kind that has come upon us is that which is just the ordinary stuff of human life. It's the common trials and the common temptations. And here is the promise that Paul then tells us. And God is faithful. So, I don't mean for for a minute to make light uh, of trials or temptations, okay? In fact, we're going to talk a little bit in detail about trials and temptations and they are not to be taken lightly, right? There's something that's actually, that should be frightening to us about temptation, okay? So by saying that it's common and saying it's ordinary, I don't mean to say that it's light and easy, all right? Anybody tempted today? Okay, the rest of you, check your pulse. You're probably dead, okay? (laughs) If you're breathing... You're being tempted. Okay, some of you are like, well, what was I tempted today? Okay. All right, well, I would just say, just wake up. And then you'd say, yeah, absolutely. I was tempted today. Tempted in all different kinds of ways. Okay. And you don't need to raise your hand on this one. How many of you successfully overcame those temptations? How many of you overcame successfully all temptation? I'm going <laughs> to... Dave's looking around. He's like, I, if you raise your hand, I want you to lay hands on me afterwards. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself, but let me just say, the fact is, is that we're tempted far more than we recognize, okay? There are temptations that are going on all the time that because we're not alert enough, we don't, we don't pick up on them, all right? So, so we're not taking temptation or trial lightly by any stretch, but here's, here's Paul's good news, and that is there's a foundation. When it, when it comes to facing these ordinary trials that are common to just being a human being, here is... Here is the foundational promise that you need to remember. God is faithful. God is faithful. And so Paul goes back to uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 9. Remember, faithful is he who called you into fellowship with his son through Jesus Christ. Right? So there's a faithfulness to God. This is one of the, this is one of the scriptural themes that gets hammered on again and again and again and again. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. He is abounding in faithfulness, right? So, in fact, when we think about the way that God is described for us, let's say in the Old Testament, what is the most common description of of God in the Old Testament? 
There's a little formula that we see throughout the Old Testament. Okay, okay, you're on the right track. This is, uh, this is uh, uh, Exodus, starts in Exodus 34. He is abounding in chesed va-emet. Okay? Loyal love and truth. Okay? By the way, that little phrase, abounding in loyal love and truth ends up being one of the most consistently descriptive phrases for God. So you have to understand the way that these two ideas work together in the Old Testament is chesed is is covenant loyalty. It's covenant love, but it's more than just covenant love. It is covenant commitment. It's covenant loyalty. It is is the idea that God is steadfastly committed to, by virtue of covenant to his people. Okay? So that's understand that the what, what that does is that gives us a perspective of why he's faithful. Because he's committed to his people in covenant, and therefore he's covenantally loyal to us, loyally loving us. Right? Now the same is not. It cannot be said of us towards God, Amen. right? Because we, we just are not as loyal as we should be, Amen. okay? But there's this hesed, so covenant, loyal love, and then truth, emmet. So truth is not just um, truth in the sense of that which is objectively true. When it says abounding in loving kindness and truth, you could understand that idea of truth as as faithfulness. Truthfulness in the sense of reliability. All right? So both of these things go together. So when Paul says God is faithful, which, and the biblical writers say it all the time, right? Hebrews 10.23, faithful is he who promised Faithful is he who called. He will bring it to pass. This is the kind of language that's used over and over and over again in the Scriptures. And so God is committed to me by virtue of covenant, the new covenant in Jesus' blood, and he is always reliable, he's always truthful, he's always dependable, thus he is always faithful. All right? Great is thy faithfulness. Okay? Now, here's, here's another interesting thing is that Jesus comes into this world in the incarnation, and it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. By the way, that is just the New Testament way of saying chesed va'emet. Jesus Christ himself is the very embodiment, the very incarnation of the covenant loyalty and faithfulness of God. Think about that. Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of the covenant loyalty and love and faithfulness of God. So God's faithfulness to us is, in a sense, secured by his character, 
Okay? He is intrinsically faithful. Okay? It's, it's, it's actually impossible for God to be unfaithful to us. It's impossible, right? So, so every once in a while you find some bonehead in college that says, oh, so, uh, so are all things possible with God? Can God do everything? And guess what the answer is? The answer is no. Okay? He can't be unfaithful. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. He cannot change. That'd be a great sermon series, right? All the things God cannot do. <laughs> right? And every single one of them is the foundation of our hope. Okay? So when we say God is faithful, we're saying something that's true about God's character, something that is intrinsically true about God, that which is true about God within himself. But when we say God is faithful, we're also saying something more than just this is a character trait. What we're saying is that God is now, by our bond in Christ, God is now personally faithful to me. This is not just a matter of of saying, when it comes to God's character, he is faithful. What it is saying is, because of Christ, He's faithful to me every single day. Every single day. There has not gone by one day in in 50 years where God has not been faithful to me. Which means he's always been reliable to me. He's always been trustworthy to me. He's always kept his promises to me. So when you, when you read, by the way, in the book of Joshua, that not one good word of the Lord fell to the ground. Okay? It's an expression that's used twice in the book of Joshua. The idea is, is that God was faithful to keep his word and to keep every word. That's what it means for God to be faithful. It means that he's true, his promises are true, and he's absolutely trustworthy. If we don't see the faithfulness of God, it's because we're not looking through the eyes of faith. If we start to think hard thoughts about God, that somehow he's not been faithful to me, we're just simply looking through the eyes of unbelief. I told you this story before, but it's always just a good reminder. So Dan Holler and I went to Latvia in 1990, I think 96 or 97, and we visited uh, this little old lady. She's 80 years old. She was a pensioner. as She was dependent on the church for her income. She lived in this little, little, tiny, tiny, tiny apartment. She was all hunched over from, uh, from arthritis. And um, she had the little scarf over her head. And, 
And so we're talking to her and come to find out that during the, uh, during the communist revolution, the way that you made um, climb the ladder in the communist party was you turned in Christians. Okay. Well, this young woman at this time, 16 years old or so, becomes a believer And she goes and tells her father, and her father and her brother beat her mercilessly, physically beat her because she professed faith. The father turned her in to the Communist Party, and she was then sent off to work manual labor in a gulag. By the way, this happened to millions of people. Millions. And you could well imagine what life for a 16-year-old girl was like in a gulag with Russian soldiers. And she was there for a number of years. She finally was released. And she's telling us her story, and our translator, Adrian Nikitans, sitting there, Dan and me and Adrian, and I asked her through our translator, what lessons has God taught you over the years? Here's a hard life. And without hesitation, she said, God was faithful to me every single day of my life. I imagine that there were times it didn't feel like God was faithful. But that's the difference between walking by sight and walking by faith. And so, the very foundation of all of God's promises is that He's faithful. Absolutely. Sovereign, wise, good. All of those things are so, so vitally important. The fact that He's faithful absolutely faithful, and it is impossible for him to be otherwise to his people, period. And so Paul says, there's no temptation, there's no trial that's overtaken you except that which is common to man. And here's what you need to remember, and God is faithful. And what does that faithfulness look like? Well, for, for this particular promise... God's, in God's faithfulness, what he does is he, he does two things for us in the midst of trial or temptation. On the one hand, in his faithfulness, he limits and he provides. Faithfully, limits and provides. 
So the, the way that God demonstrates his faithfulness in the midst of trial and temptation is to limit and to provide. So the limitation is, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Okay? Now, I, we had an interesting discussion in the Greek class a couple of weeks ago. I don't think that what the point of this is, is that, hey, don't worry, God won't give you anything you can't handle. Okay? That's, really, that's not the life of faith. God gives us stuff all the time that we can't handle, and we're supposed to trust him, right? I mean, if, I mean, either God thinks that we can handle way, 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 way more than we can, or else he puts us in situations where he says, you know what, you're going to have to trust me or you're going to die, right? So when he says he will not permit you to be tempted beyond what you are able. The idea is, so God knows our weakness. Psalm 103, 14, right? He is mindful that we are but dust, right? He's mindful of our weaknesses. He's mindful that we're but flesh. He's mindful, not not just of our weakness in terms of our humanity, which is absolutely true, but he's also mindful of our individual weaknesses, The God who is faithful is the God who knows you. And he knows you're rising up, and he knows you're sitting down, and he knows you're going forth, and he knows your heart, and he knows your mind, and he knows your weaknesses, and he knows knows the struggles of your heart. He knows the doubts. He knows absolutely everything there is to know about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. So he's not just mindful like, oh, there's another chunk of clay. I got to be careful. I know how fragile they are. It is, I know how fragile that one is. I know how fragile you are. That's the point. So, So here God is, who is absolutely mindful of our own inherent natural weakness as human beings. And then he's also very much aware of our weaknesses as individuals. And here is what the point is, is that God sovereignly limits what comes into our life. There's not a single solitary trial nor temptation that has come into your life or mine that did not have to first pass through the wise, loving hand and counsel of my Heavenly Father. He knows exactly how to limit what comes to us. Don't go thinking... I am really just an excessively burdened person. So God must think incredibly highly of me. It's not really the point. It's not the point at all. Even in a room this size with just a handful of us, there is not a single thing that has come into any one of our lives, but that God did not first say, 
I know your limits. And I'm going to sovereignly limit this so that whatever has come to you has come to you through his fatherly hand. So what that means is that there's not a single one of us that can never say, that was just too strong for me. I had no choice. That was just, that was just too much. I couldn't help it. God himself, by his faithful limitation of what comes into our life, takes that excuse away from us. And whether it is the pain of trials or the power of temptation, the fact is, is that he is our faithful God who measures out exactly what we need. If you think that what you've had to bear is too great, just think of all of that which your father did not allow to come in to your life. Think of all of that which he refused to permit. The God who's faithful is also the God who's good. So his faithfulness is demonstrated, first of all, in in the limitation, but then secondly, it is demonstrated in provision. But he shall make, with the temptation, also the way of escape. And see, oh, there it is. There it is. So what I need to do, what I need to do is, with the trial or the temptation, is I need to scurry around and feverishly look for the escape hatch. Isn't that what that means? He's providing the way of escape. So here's the temptation. It's like, oh, look at that. Exit, left. It's not the way it works. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying when he says he will make the way of escape, he's not saying that he is making a magical escape hatch. Let me just say what else he's not saying. He's also not saying that he will miraculously cause the trial or the temptation, the affliction to just come to an end. Wouldn't that be great? Just say, well, I'm trusting God. Boom, it's over. Doesn't exactly work like that. In fact, um, the provision that with the temptation he provides the way of escape, um, you need to think about escape a little differently. When I think of escape, I think of Steve McQueen. <laughs> I know, my, 
this is why I need Jason, because he'd be like, no, that's not a good illustration, because only the people that are 40 and over know even what you're talking about. The great escape. Yeah, okay, now, yeah, everybody's like, what was he talking about? Steve McQueen, great escape. You saw it, right? You should. If you haven't, um, you should probably watch it. Anyway, this is not the idea of escapism with temptation or trial. Escapism is the mentality that says, God doesn't want me to go through hard stuff. Or escapism is God wants to spare me from from tribulation. Escapism basically is, um, is projecting onto God our overly protective parenting. There's a little ebook that you parents of small children should read called Beware of Dangerism. Okay. Dangerism. Get rid of monkey bars. Kids hurt themselves. Okay. Um, make sure you have really safe stuff if they, so that if they fall, and plus, you don't want them eating the dirt. So make sure that, it's, uh, that the fall stuff is organic and tasty. Um, make sure that you get rid of merry-go-rounds, right? Um, hey, don't swing those broom handles at each other. You're going to put your eye out. No, boys were made to play with swords and guns, all right? It's true. So we have a culture that's like, I want to protect I want to protect you. I don't want you to I don't want you to get hurt. I don't want you I don't want you to feel bad. I don't want you to feel guilty. I don't want you to feel I don't want you to feel anything other than that you're the very center of the universe. And God says, that's not what I mean. I'll let you break your arm. I'll let you fall off the monkey bars. Okay. When I was at Catholic school, we had a merry-go-round, and that thing was Awesome. So what we would do, okay, so if some of you did this, you'll know how fun it was. What we'd do is, you know, they had the bars like this, and they go into the middle, and we would all take a station, and then we would all get that thing going as fast as possible. I mean, it was going warp speed. And then one of us standing in the middle, holding on, on the verge of vomiting, would then make our way to the edge, grab a bar, and then throw ourselves out so that we were like swinging around, feet straight out, right? And then the boldest and the bravest would do what? Let go, okay? Awesome. That was, so God says, you want to play like that? Go right ahead. He's not, he's not interested in escapism. So what does it mean that he provides the way of escape? Well, here's the idea. Notice it says it right in the text, so that you're able to endure. Does that sound a little strange to you? Escape and endure. I don't know about you, but just on the face of it, escape sounds better to me than endure. If I'm thinking about escape in the wrong way, as if God's going to 
provide some magical exit or bring a magical end, then that's not what God's talking about. The way of escape is actually seen in, in what? So that we're able to endure it. What is enduring trial or temptation? And the answer is enduring means in trial that I'm bearing up under. Okay? I'm bearing up under it in terms of temptation. What does endurance look like? It looks like this. I'm resisting it. I'm resisting it. Now, understand this. In order to escape, you need to endure and resist. And endurance and resistance are not the opposite of escape. That is, God provides the ability for us to endure so that we are able to ultimately get through it safely. So the way out is to bear up, not to give in. You should probably write that down somewhere. I thought that was pretty good. The way out is to bear up and not to give in. So we endure temptation when we resist it. And how do you resist? You flee. When it comes to temptation, resistance is by fleeing. Do you know what God calls you to do in the face of temptation? Flee. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10.14, flee idolatry. The best strategy is to flee. Temptation comes... You flee. That's resisting temptation. Think about Joseph. What did Joseph do? Did did Joseph resist temptation? The answer is yes, he did. And was Joseph tempted once? And the answer is no. He was tempted day after day after day. Finally, when the temptation seized him, quite literally, what did he do? He fled. That's the picture. So temptation... So God says, hey, I'm faithful. When temptation comes on you, I'm going to provide you the way of escape. Now, in order to get that escape, you need to resist. Best way to resist, flee. So Paul is not giving comfort to those who think they stand. All right? He's assuring those who know what it is to be overtaken. He's not comforting the proud. He's comforting the afflicted. He's comforting the burdened. And he does that by telling us that the temptations and trials that we encounter are no different than anyone else. And if we're determined to be faithful, if we're determined to run, God opens the way of escape. Now, how does this work in like daily life? 
that's what we want to know, right? Because all of this is, is, is good. It's good to know, but what does it look like tonight when a trial comes upon me or temptation comes upon me? I got to do this fairly quickly. Maybe I won't even get through. I don't know. So, in Sunday school, we've been talking about John Owen. Temptation. What I'm going to share with you is just simply what I've learned from John Owen. All right? So, when we think about this subject of trials and temptations, first of all, trials may come upon us. In fact, we can almost be guaranteed that trials will come upon us. Remember James 1.2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, if you happen to be one of the unlucky ones who happen to stumble into trials which only take place once every few years. (laughs) That's that's the the, um, Lakewood Study Bible. Anyway... um, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Trials will come. Um, The Puritans, who wrote a lot about trials, um, had a perspective that my relation to trials goes like this. I'm either going into one, I'm either in one, or I'm just coming out of one. Those are the only three positions. Trials are a part of this life. Man was, was, was born for trial. Man was born for affliction, just as sure as sparks fly upward, said one of Job's miserable counselors. And these come to us, so trials, so this is the way we're going to distinguish. Trials come to us by God's sovereign purpose to test our faith. Trials come by God's sovereign purpose to test our faith. Who is the Old Testament example of that truth? Abraham, Genesis chapter 22. Now, Owen makes this comment on why God tests us. He says, and listen, listen carefully, grace and corruption lie deep in the heart. And man is often deceived in his evaluations of it. God comes to us with a gauge that can go right to the bottom. His instruments of trial dig right into the depths and innermost parts of the soul. This allows man to see clearly what is truly in him, and what type of metal is in his constitution. 
trials are designed by God's sovereign purpose to show us what is in us, to show us what our faith is made of. The fact is, is that is that no Christian actually has a, a, a genuine assessment of the health and nature of their faith during times of prosperity. It is the times of trial that show us what our faith is made of. So testing is designed by God for the growth and the purification and the maturing of our faith. Right? This is James 1, 2-4, 1 Peter 1, 6-7. Right? So it's, it's not just consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It's knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work in you so that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. God's designs in trials are to help us grow and to purify us, and to strengthen our faith. Nobody wants a trial, but here's the thing, is that when when trials come, what we know is that they're measured out to us by God for our good to strengthen and to grow our faith. And so how do you use 1 Corinthians 10.13? in the midst of a trial. Well, first of all, you can give thanks to God that it's, that it's a trial that has been limited by His faithfulness. And it's a trial in which He has provided for us the very strength that we need to endure. And the fuel for my faith to endure in the midst of trial, is the faithfulness of God. And so I, I, I anchor my soul and my faith, and I bank everything that I am on the fact that he will never leave me nor forsake me. Even when... The trial doesn't make sense to us. Even when we can't see a purpose in it, we are, we are in a fog. The only thing that you need to know is that he's faithful. That's all you need to know. He doesn't expect you to apply theological calculus to figure out why this trial has come upon you. He says, trust me. I'm faithful. I know exactly what I'm doing. Too wise to be mistaken. Too good to be unkind. And so our faith then is put into that crucible. Nobody wants to be there. Nobody wants to be there. I've never met a Christian that's said, 
I want to grow so much, I hope God just brings trials on me. Okay? Nobody says that. Nobody says that. But when you're in the crucible, you have to say, I'm here by the hand of the faithful God who loves me and would never harm me. And he's growing me. And he's conforming me to the image of his son. And that not only applies to trials that impact our health, or trials that come into our lives through the health of loved ones, or the loss of a loved one. Sometimes those trials are the strained and difficult relationships within a marriage. Do you not think that the God who is in absolute sovereign control over every cell of your body so that if you get cancer, it is only by His sovereign decree is also the same God who is in absolute control over every molecule of your marriage? And the suffering that may take place because of because of a difficult child or because of a difficult relationship or because of a difficult marriage, that too has been measured out by the hand of God. It's not as if he says, well, I'm only in charge of the health stuff. All the, all the relationship stuff, that's just yours. It's all his. All of it. And he says, I've given you the grace to endure it. Period. If you don't, that's on us. Not on God. God's actually given us everything that we need. To endure it to his glory. Well, I doubt that we can move on to temptation in any sort of meaningful way. So we'll just wait. I know. That's probably not the it's probably not the best place to leave off because some of you are going to be facing temptation, and you're going to say, man, I wish we'd have finished that study. 1 Corinthians 10.13 will be true whether we finish the study or not. All right? So let's pray. Father, great is your faithfulness, and great is your faithfulness to us, to each one of us. We pray, Father, that you would use your word tonight to just minister to us, strengthen us, help us. Father, we pray for those that, that really have experienced or are experiencing even now just the, the trials of life that are filled with, with pain, Lord. And even though they're common to humanity, humanity is fallen and under a curse. And so, Lord, these can be painful things. We pray that your faithfulness 
would be magnified in our lives, that you'd strengthen our faith. Help us, Lord, to see that everything that comes to us is by your educational design. We pray that we would grow. We love you. We thank you for your mercies to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.